You're listening to The Archive, a collection of sermons and teachings from Pastor Mike and his peers from days past. Stick around for timeless truths that still speak to the issues of our days. Please take your Bible and turn with me in the book of Acts to the 14th chapter. This morning time permitting, we're going to look at the entire chapter of Acts 14, but in an attempt to conserve some time to begin with, rather than read the entire chapter, I would like for us to read the first four verses, and then I'm going to lead you as we read through the rest of this chapter, and I attempt to explain it properly and also help you to understand and apply it to your life. Beginning with verse 1 of Acts chapter 14, the Bible says, And it came about that in Iconium they entered the synagogue of the Jews together and spoke in such a manner that a great multitude believed, both of Jews and of Greeks. But the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. Therefore they spent a long time there speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. But the multitude of the city was divided, and some sided with the Jews, and some with the apostles. You can imagine the surprise that a certain pastor had one Sunday as he was situated at the back door and the congregation was filing past, and a little boy in the congregation stood before him and he said, Pastor, when I grow up, I hope I make a lot of money, and if I make a lot of money, I'm going to give some to you. Well, the pastor never had anybody, much less a child, say something like that to him. He was really quite excited. He tried to contain his excitement, and he put his hand on the shoulder of the boy, and he said, Now, tell me, son, why do you want to do that for me? He said, Because my daddy says that you are the poorest preacher in town. (laughs) Well, there's certainly a lot of poor preaching which goes on, and I've done my share of it for sure. But what we need to understand is the Bible sets the mark or the bar for what successful preaching is. And I believe this passage of Scripture, which we're going to consider today, gives us insight in that. When we set out to measure preaching to determine whether it's good, mediocre, or poor, one of the measurements we use is, does it end on time? Most people enjoy the ending of most sermons. They're happy about it simply because it's over. You know, there's no more to it. Once it's finished, it's finished. And a lot of people think that the thing they most detest about preaching that's poor is that the speaker speaks of that which he knows nothing of and he's very fluent about it. He just keeps going on and on and on and on. And you've said under some of my sermons like that, I'm sure in other preachers' sermons like that. But the Bible is really clear as to what the purpose of preaching is, what constitutes successful preaching. There are at least seven direct or indirect references in Acts chapter 14 to the preaching of the gospel. Now, any preaching that does not have the gospel as its subject is poor preaching. And, of course, the Bible is rather clear as to what constitutes the gospel. Paul says the gospel is this. Christ died for our sins, was buried, and was raised from the dead. And I might add that the apostle would agree with me when I say that that gospel is preached to get a response. And the response is that people would believe. Did you notice in the first verse which we read 
that when Barnabas and Paul preached in Iconium, that a great multitude of people believed? Paul writes in Romans chapter 10, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. How then shall they call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? The gospel must be proclaimed if people are going to believe. And that's the purpose that God has given the gospel for, to save us, yes, but for us to proclaim. Now, let me be very clear that when the Bible uses the term preach or preaching, it does not carry with it the idea of someone doing what I'm doing today alone, although that would be included. Another aspect, and probably a more basic aspect, is the aspect of heralding the good news and in Biblical times, outside scriptural references, this term is used for an ambassador for a king who's been given the responsibility to go out and to declare good news. All of us who know Jesus Christ have good news which we can share with other people. It's not a right reserved for people that we normally think of as preacher types. I hope you have that firmly fixed in your mind. Remember what Jesus said to his apostles before he ascended into heaven. He said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. He sent us into the world to preach the gospel. He sent that first band of apostles who were also disciples and make it clear that apostles were disciples, but not all disciples are apostles. The most common term used in the New Testament for a follower of Jesus Christ is the term disciple. You might be surprised that over 200 times this word is used to describe a so-called Christian more than any other term. All of us are called to be disciples, and as a part of our discipleship, we've been given the great opportunity to declare the good news of Jesus Christ. And when Jesus was talking to this original band of disciples the night before he was crucified, notice what he said. He said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, fruit that remains. As we're going to see as we read through this chapter that Paul and Barnabas, after having preached the gospel, certainly great multitudes believed. We see this in Iconium and then also in Lystra and finally in Derby. But what we discover is that after they had made their preaching round, they decided they would go back and see what had happened and strengthen and encourage those who had believed. And what they discovered was when they went back, those people were still following the Lord Jesus Christ. So the goal that God has given us in proclaiming the gospel, the way we can measure whether our proclamation of the gospel is in fact successful, is not how cute it is, not how entertaining it is, not how short the message may be, not how informative the message may be, but what is the final result in terms of the fruit which is born. Do people who hear us share the gospel keep on walking with the Lord Jesus Christ? When people like me preach week in and week out, are there people whose lives are changed irrevocably forever because of having heard the true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? Now, this Bible passage teaches us some things. And I'm going to share three things with you that I think this passage teaches us about successful preaching of the gospel. The first thing it preaches is that successful preaching of the gospel depends upon Jesus Christ. Did you notice in verse 3 what Luke writes? He said they spoke boldly because they were relying upon the Lord. Whenever Luke uses the term Lord, 
in the book of Acts without any other reference to any other name, he's obviously speaking about Jesus. So here, Barnabas and Paul, preaching in Iconium, they had a great response, and the reason was because they relied upon the Lord. You may remember when Paul was writing to the church at Corinth, he described his own experience as he stood on the outskirts of Corinth, and he looked at that intimidating city, and he wondered how God was going to use him. Do you remember what his testimony was? It's recorded in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He says this. He says, I determined, I resolved when I was with you to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, and literally the word weakness means strengthlessness. It's not a real good English word, but that's what it really means. Completely void of any strength. I came to you in weakness and fear. Imagine the Apostle Paul doing anything out of fear, but he came with that underlying attitude of emotion and with much trembling. He was visibly shaken as he was getting ready to enter the city and then to preach the gospel. But he says, this happened. This message and this preaching which I gave you happened so that you might not rely on men's wisdom, but on the power of God. Not on oratory, not on eloquence, not on intelligence, not on rhetoric, not on anything that a man can do. No, I would not want you to have been persuaded by me. I understand that if your salvation is going to be sure and lasting, it has to be the work of Jesus Christ through me. Jesus says also in the 15th chapter of the book of John, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. So how is it that Paul and Barnabas bore much fruit in Iconium? It's because they were living in a dependent relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Just like a branch is in a vine and depends for its very life. So Barnabas and Paul, as they were preaching the gospel message, depended upon the Lord. The reason you may not bear fruit, or I may not bear fruit, when we preach the gospel is because we may have the message right. We may say it in a very clear, attractive manner, and there's nothing wrong with that. But we may not be trusting the Lord to produce the fruit through our lives. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, the third chapter, not that we have any competence in ourselves, but our competence comes from God. Probably you value competence in people. Probably there's not a person present this morning who would want to go to a physician who was incompetent. Now, I want my doctor to have the highest level of competence in order that I can have confidence in him. But what does the Apostle Paul say? There is no competence in ourselves. Our competence comes from God. Does that mean that Paul was slipshod in the way he went about studying the Scriptures and preparing to teach people? Do you think Paul ever did anything in a half-hearted manner? He was no 99 percenter. He was 100 percent all the time. But he understood that his best effort, if it were not connected to the very life of Jesus Christ, was an inadequate, failed effort. And that's true for us, not just with regard to preaching the gospel, but for living a life of just letting people see Jesus Christ in us. One more reference to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21. The Bible says that God was pleased, now listen carefully, God was pleased through the foolishness of preaching that people who believed in it would be saved. Can you imagine that? 
Isn't it quite foolish for a person like me to try to stand up in front of a group like you and think that I could persuade anybody here to receive Jesus Christ as personal Savior and Lord? In fact, we're going to see later in Acts chapter 14 how the Bible says very clearly, and it's repeated throughout the book of Acts. I could give you examples of it. I won't take the time now. That the Lord opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. You know who has to open your heart for you to receive Christ? Jesus has to open the door of your heart. I can't pry it open. I'm just a messenger. You can't pry the heart of anyone else open. You're just a messenger. And your message will be received dependent upon your depending upon the Lord and the power of Christ in your life. Now, let's look at verse 3 a little more closely. Therefore, they spent a long time there speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord. We've already considered that who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, who was doing the witnessing through Barnabas and Paul. It was Jesus, wasn't it? Granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. Many times in the book of Acts, and many times since the writing of the book of Acts, when the gospel has been preached, the Lord has verified the preaching of the gospel by visible signs and wonders. Luke does not tell us, what form these signs and wonders took in Iconium, but jump down to verse 8 because he gives us insight into a certain sign that occurred and wonder which occurred in nearby Lystra after Barnabas and Paul had been run out on a rail from Iconium. Now look at verse 8. And at Lystra there was sitting a certain man without strength in his feet, lame from his mother's womb. He was congenitally lame, who had never walked. This man was listening to Paul as he spoke. Paul was preaching the gospel who, when he had fixed his gaze upon him, Paul, that is, and had seen that he had faith to be made well, and said with a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he leaped up, and he began to walk. The verb leaped up means it was a sudden action. And the word began to walk suggests that this man was not merely healed, this man was cured. Do you know the difference between a healing and a curing? People get healed to get sick again. To be cured is to be never ill in that way again. And that's what happened in this man's life. He was fully cured. Now, signs and wonders are a dangerous thing if they're committed to the hands of people who do not depend upon the Lord. And fortunately, Barnabas and Paul were completely dependent upon the Lord. Notice the response of the Lyconian people, verse 11. And when the multitude saw what Paul had done, they raised their voice, saying in Lyconian language, and let me interject here, they probably spoke Greek as a second language, and they were broken in their speech more than likely. The Lyconian language was their primary language. Paul and Barnabas evidently did not know that language. And notice what they say. The gods have become like men and have come down to us. And they began calling Barnabas, Zeus, and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker, that is Paul. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. Now, what caused them to respond? They had seen a great miracle, obviously. They had heard the gospel, which was a tremendously powerful message. We are helped, however, to understand what this is all about by Ovid. Ovid was a a Roman poet who had lived 50 years before, and among those works which he wrote was a compendium of stories entitled Metamorphoses. 
you hear our word metamorphosis from it. It was a detailing of stories of how people had been radically changed in their appearance. And one of the stories in Ovid's Metamorphoses tells of Zeus and Hermes, Zeus being the chief of the Greek gods, Hermes being his son by a goddess by the name of Maya, who came to this very region, the Lyconian Valley, which was a very fertile valley. It was very good for agriculture, and it was surrounded by beautiful forests. These two Greek gods had come disguised as men. And when they arrived in the area, they would go door to door. They were knocking on house after house after house, and repeatedly they were rejected by those people in the valley and they were not given housing until finally they came to the house of a man by the name of Philemon, not to be confused with the name of the man to whom Paul wrote the book of Philemon and his wife Bacchus and these elderly, very poor people whose house was nothing more than a thatched hut invited them in and treated them royally. The next morning, after they had had breakfast, they invited Philemon and Bacchus to the nearby mountains and they got up there and it, no sooner had they gotten to the top of the mountains than as the legend goes the whole valley was flooded and all the homes of those who had rejected them were destroyed well you can see why these people in Lystra wanted to take care of Paul and Barnabas right they didn't want to repeat performance they thought here they are again we're not going to make the same mistake twice in Lystra that is the background but notice the response of Barnabas and Paul in verse 14 when they discovered what was going on. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their robes and rushed out into the crowd crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you. You know, this is one of the wonderful things when we read the book of Acts when God uses someone who is depending upon him to preach the gospel and fruit is born and there is a response that would try to elevate the person who has been the messenger. The response of Peter, we saw in Acts chapter 10 at the house of Cornelius. Now we see the response of Barnabas and Paul is to say, Hey, we are men just like you. We are merely servants of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And notice what he goes on to write here. And preach the gospel to you, and this gives us the purpose for the preaching of the gospel, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. Surely you're aware of the fact that the world, our culture, offers many vain things that we can put our faith and trust in, many vain pursuits that we can engage in. You're aware of that, aren't you? And it's no surprise that the leading, I think, thinking of our day in this regard is what would be called secular humanism. Now, I'm not going to give a treatise on that subject. I'm not really qualified to do that. But what I do know is that secular humanism elevates man to the place that only God deserves in a person's life. And what's interesting is that secular humanism in its effort to elevate man to this position of deity, actually, in the process, devalues man. Isn't that always the case? When we try to begin to tinker with the way God created things, we begin to tamper with things, we begin to tweak them, thinking that we have a better idea. But remember what God's idea is about you and me. God's idea is we were created in His image. 
In the eighth Psalm, read it for yourself sometimes, David queries God. He asks God, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you are mindful of him? Why, man is just a little lower, and most of the translations say, than the angels. That is an improper translation because the word translated angels is the word Elohim. Elohim is the word that's used throughout the Old Testament for God. Man is just a little lower than God. We are above the angels. I've said it recently. We're going to judge the angels. The angels are our servants. We have been created at a higher level than the angels because we have been created in the image of God. And what does secular humanism seek to do in its effort to elevate man it has its basic doctrine really is the doctrine of evolution and I'm certainly not an expert on that either but it's one of the basic doctrines of secular humanism which says you didn't come from God because there is no God you came from some primordial primordial ooze somewhere out in the universe isn't that crazy that's absurd it takes more faith to believe in that than it certainly does in the scriptures and the teaching of the Bible. But what we need to understand is there are many things that we can pursue that are vain. But what is the gospel preached for? To turn us away from such vain pursuits. I wonder, is there anyone here today who is engaged in some sort of vain pursuit? It may not be secular humanism. It may be hedonism, just living life, doing whatever makes you feel good to please yourself. The bottom line is that we need to understand that when Jesus calls us, he calls us to say no to ourselves, to deny ourselves, in order that we might follow him and give our lives to him. And in so doing, the result is that we experience everything we were created to experience to begin with. Now, join me again in the last part of verse 15. Speaking of God, he calls God the living God. And notice where he begins when he was in Iconium, Paul and I would add Barnabas as well. When they spoke in the synagogue, they began with Scripture. Why? Because the Jews had a background of Scripture. But they come to Lystra, which evidently had no Jewish community represented in it, or if it was there, it was very inconsequential and not influential at all. And so where do they begin? They begin where the people are. And this is an important lesson for us to learn. When we seek to witness to people and win people to Christ, we start where they are. Where did Paul and Barnabas begin? They began, did they not, in referring to seeing God reflected in nature, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. They spoke of God the Creator. Look at verse 16. And in the generations gone by, He permitted all the nations to go their own ways. The truth is, no man seeks God on his own. No woman seeks God. Left to her own or to his own devices, every human being follows his or her own path. And it's not in the direction of God. It's in the opposite direction. And the Lord allows that. Look at verse 17. And yet he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. And even saying these things, they with difficulty restrained the crowds from offering sacrifice to them. He also speaks here of the provider God, not just the creator God. Wow. Wow. Depending on the Lord is essential. But understand, when God entrusts that power to us, we have to be careful to be sure to communicate to those that we share it with that it's not from us, but it's from God. We need to give proper credit to God in this whole process. Well, there's a second thing, and I won't linger long here. 
that successful gospel preaching does. It divides people. Look back, if you will, at verse 4. But the multitude of the city was divided, and some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. Now look at verses 19 and 20. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having won over the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. Earlier we would have seen, if we had had time to read it, that in Iconium there had been an attempt to stone Paul and Barnabas. Now it was finally fulfilled when this delegation from the two cities of Pisidia and Antioch in Iconium, they come here from the synagogues, and there's won the multitudes over, and they stoned him, and they thought he was dead. Now, he, he wasn't playing possum, by the way be hard to do that having been stoned look at verse 20 but while the disciples stood around him he arose and entered the city what a man let me tell you something about Paul there is a document from the second century it tried to work its way into our scriptures the canon of scripture but it didn't make its way in there it's called the Acts of Paul and Thecla it was written in 160 AD and it gives a description of the Apostle Paul it says he was short bow-legged, bald, his eyebrows grew together, he had a hooked nose, but he was a man who had the appearance from time of an angel, or in sometimes the appearance of a man. He was also a very sturdy individual. Here's this man, probably in his 50s, about my age, who gets stoned, he's left for dead. Undoubtedly, God gave him his strength back, did a healing on him. What does he do? Would you have gone back into Lystra if you'd just been stoned there? What does he do? He goes right back into the city. Understand that he was a man who could feel fear, but he was also a man who could be filled with the courage of God in his life because he depended upon Christ. That's where his courage came, and that's where your courage and my courage comes when it has to do with preaching the gospel. You know what Paul testifies in 1 Corinthians chapter 9? Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. He was like Jeremiah who said, I tried to keep the word of God to myself, but it was like a fire in my bones. I could not contain myself. I had to share what I knew to be the truth. That was true of the apostle Paul as well. But here we see the next day, it says in verse 20, he went away with Barnabas to Derby. One final word before we move on to the last emphasis that I believe this text makes. We've already seen that successful gospel preaching depends on the Lord, and it divides people. Now, can you think of someone else whose life in preaching divided people? Is it any wonder, knowing that Jesus' preaching divided people? John 7, 43, the Bible says, there arose a division in the multitude because of him. Whenever Jesus is involved in anything, there's going to be a division in the multitude. It even happens in churches, amazingly. And the reason it happens in churches is because sometimes there are people who appear to be followers of Jesus who really aren't in the church. And when Jesus begins to show up and you begin to preach the real gospel, then there is a division in the body. Really, it's not the body. It's just that those who make up the visible church sometimes can't handle it and they leave as a result of that but we need to understand that where the life of Christ is there will be a certain amount of division remember what Jesus says in Matthew 10:34 I did not come to bring peace but a sword does that mean that you and I are to put our dukes up I don't even know how to do it 
It's been so long since I've had a fight. But to put our dukes up and approach people with the gospel like this, I dare you, come on, come on, hit me, come on. I'll take your best punch. Is that the way we're supposed to present the gospel? No. Are we supposed to unsheathe our sword? Now, we know the Bible says that the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. Yes, we're to use the Word of God. No, we don't have to do that. We just have to follow Jesus Christ. And when we follow Jesus, trouble will find us. That's not very inviting, is it, to follow Jesus? But it's the truth. Let's read a little further here. And here's the third thing, that successful preaching of the gospel develops disciples of Christ. Verse 21, And after they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra. Look, look at what they did. They made this circle, ended up in Derby, and now what they decide to do is to go back and retrace their steps. They go back to Lystra where Paul had been stoned. They go on, then on to Iconium where they had been run out. They go to Antioch. I mean, every place they go, they get run out. And notice what they were doing, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Does that mean if you want to be in heaven, you've got to go out and be persecuted? No, that's not what that means. What it does mean, however, is if you really follow Jesus Christ and you seek to serve him, you're going to experience a certain degree of rejection in your life. It's part of the package. But it's something that is very, very edifying, really, if you respond to it properly. And something that's just fleeting. It's passing in comparison to eternity. There is no comparison. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, Barnabas and Paul saw that elders were placed in every church, the leaders of the church, having prayed with fasting. That's how they determined who these elders should be. Obviously, they hadn't been Christians very long, just a few months. But they gave evidence of having grown more rapidly than the others. They commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed, and they passed through Pisidia and came into Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, from which they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had accomplished. And when they had arrived and gathered the church together, that's in their home church, not Pisidian Antioch, but Syrian Antioch, they began to report all things that God had done with them now notice that last phrase, all things that God had done with them. Do you think they understood who their source was? Who the source of the fruit that God had borne through them? It was Jesus, was it? God had done this with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles and they spent a long time with the disciples. They needed a little R&R, didn't they? After all the beating they had taken. Our ministry of preaching the gospel is incomplete until we help those whom Jesus has won to him through us to be strengthened and encouraged and to understand the basics of the Christian life. If there's one thing I'm committed to personally, not pastorally, although it's hard for me to separate the person from the pastor because that's my spiritual gift, that's my calling, but if there's one thing that I'm personally committed to, and I hope this would be infectious, I hope I rub off on some of you. The one thing I'm committed to is to see that if any fruit is born through my life as a result of Jesus doing it through me, that that fruit will remain. Do you know how it remains? It's where people like you and me invest our lives, our very lives, in the men and women whom God uses us to win to Christ. 
I'm praying, and I wish you'd join me in this, that God would raise up a vast army of people in this church, men and women. I was in the home Wednesday night of a promising couple. They were here in early church today. This couple has great potential for influence for God. They are very new in their faith, even though they've been Christians for a long time. And we were talking to the man, and we said, would you like to be in a Bible study? I was with another brother, and we were witnessing to this family. Didn't know if they were believers. Come to find out they were. And he said, yes, I would like to have that very much. And the woman, if I could have told her, I know some woman in this church who can disciple you personally, I guarantee you I didn't ask her because I couldn't think of it offhand. That's no reflection on the women. I just know the men better, and I know how to link men up with men. We need to work better in linking women up with women in personal discipleship. We have great Bible teaching in our church by women and for women. But we need to develop a core of women who have that heart to invest as Paul invested in the life of these people and as Barnabas invested. Would you join me in praying right now? Let's just go to the Lord and pray. And ask the Lord to give us successful communication of the gospel. Successful communication of the gospel. Father, we know that in order for this to happen, we must depend upon Jesus. And we know that when we preach the gospel as it's intended to be preached, there will be some division. And Lord, we want to develop disciples. Thank you for the heart of discipleship that you've placed in so many people in our church, Lord. And help us to get people on our hearts, Lord, because they are on your heart. We thank you, Father, for the presentation of truth that is done here every Sunday in our Sunday school departments. Lord, every Thursday during our women's Bible studies and throughout the week in other Bible studies, Lord, help us not to relent in that. Help us to be so committed to seeing that those whom you win will be nurtured and developed so they can do likewise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.